Welcome to the teaching ministry of Paseo del Rey Church in Chula Vista, California. We invite you to open up your Bibles as we join Pastor Gary Bowman for today's message. So, so will I. What a great worship story, worship song. Good morning, Paseo. Hey, I'm Pastor Gary, if you don't know me, and it is good to be with you this morning. We are going to open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 7 this morning. If you forgot your Bible or don't have one, there's one in the rack in front of you there. We're on page 971, 971, Matthew chapter 7. So I have a question for you today, and I have a couple questions. Uh, The first one is, how do you... How do you end a sermon? And I know what some of you are thinking. Quickly. Quickly. <laughs> the first service, it was unplug the mic, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And some of you are thinking, Gary, it's taken you 39 years of preaching to finally ask that question. And, uh, but I, I, have a, I have a really good reason for asking that question. Is, and it's because today Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. And, and so this question is, how does Jesus end a sermon? And uh, when I was in seminary at Trinity uh, in Chicago, um, Lloyd Perry was the preaching professor, and he would say, he would always have his finger wagging, he would say, boys, always end the message with hope. Always end it with good news. No matter how hard the message is, we are taught, uh, always end the message upbeat and with hope and with good news. Land the plane in a manner that people go out hopeful and smiling and rejoicing. And, And so with that in my brain, I have to ask this question, how does Jesus in the greatest sermon ever preached. And, and I have some bad news for Lloyd Perry. Jesus ends it with a ginormous, irreparable crash. Matthew chapter 7, verse 27. The, the last sentence of this amazing Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lands it with a catastrophe. The rain came down, Jesus said, and the streams rose, and the winds blew, and they beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Amen? Go home, have a nice lunch, and have a great week, by the way. (laughs) Right? 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 So why in the world... What does Jesus want to teach us? What does Jesus want us to take away from this awesome sermon that he taught on the hillside, the Sermon on the Mount, that he ends with this great catastrophe, this great crash? And I think he wants us to learn, and I think he wants us to apply, and he thinks he wants us to respond in a couple of ways. And so, so, so here's the outline of the message, I hope, from the text itself is Jesus gives us a strong and stern warning. And and we're going to spend most of our time thinking about that this morning. He talks to us about a warning, and he also talks to us by exposing our hearts. 
So he says, he says I want to warn you, but, but it, the warning is not what it looks like. The warning is about your heart, about something inside of you. And then he gives us a wonderful invitation, and he, invita- he invites us to bow. And so as we go through this passage, this is going to be our structure. This is how we're going to work through it. And to try to help us understand why Jesus ends his sermon on such a negative note, on such a harsh note, on such a critical note, on such a note of such uh, irreparable disaster. The rain came down, verse 27, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. Amen. So what I want to do is I want to read the passage to you. We're going to begin at verse 13 and go through verse 27. Keep this outline in mind as we read. So Jesus, as he concludes his sermon, begins, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do, Do people pick grapes from thorn brushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, and it is thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not perform miracles, many miracles in your name? And then I will tell them quite clearly, plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, and the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had been, its foundation had been built on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. Jesus, may our houses not fall with a great crash. May we hear your warning. May we 
not think it applies to someone else. May you speak your warning into my heart and into our hearts. Would you expose our hearts for what they're really like? And may we warmly embrace your invitation and may we bow and enter through the narrow gate. In Jesus' name, amen. So a warning, a warning. So Jesus begins with, this, uh, with, with um, the, the police lights blaring. So you're coming home, it's dark, coming home from work, or you're coming home from the gym, or coming home from school, wherever you're coming from, and you're driving on H Street, and ahead of you, you notice the blue and the red and the yellow lights are flashing. And, and, and you need to pay attention, right? You need to stop texting, right? You need to, you need to put the cell phone down. You need to stop cleaning your teeth, flossing your teeth. You need to stop talking to the person sitting next to you in the car. You need to, you need to be aware that there's danger ahead, right? That, that if you keep driving like you're driving and you don't observe, and you may even have to change your course, and if you don't, you're going to be in a world of hurt up ahead. And, and that's what Jesus, he's got all the lights are flashing, the, the red lights and the blue lights and the yellow lights and the white lights, and all the lights are flashing. And he's giving us a warning, and he's saying, if you keep going the way you're going... There is a big crash ahead of you, an irreparable crash. Now, most, most of the times, if you bang up your car, most of the time, you can, you can have it repaired. There's Bondo. There's new fenders. There, there's amazing things that a body shop can do. But Jesus is saying here, if, if you look at, at each, of the, each of the warnings, he's talking about destruction. He's talking about, uh, in verse 19, being cut down and thrown into a fire. In verse 23, away from me, you evildoers. In verse 27, there is this irreparable crash. He says, listen, do you see the lights? I'm showing you the lights. Listen up to this warning. Now, now you noticed as I read, I hope you noticed as I read, and as you've read it before, that there is this series of twos. There's this series of pairs. And I think one of the, th the reason I began uh, the preaching passage at verse 13 through, chapter, through uh, verse 27 is because these, this series of twos weaves itself all the way through this teaching passage. I think Jesus is doing this intentionally. He's using twos to drive his point home. He's using pairs so that we get it. So you see, for instance, don't you, in verses 13 and 14, that there's two gates, that there's two roads. There's two very different destinies, depending on which road, which gate you choose. You notice in verses 15 and following, there is assumed to be, not explicitly, but there's assumed to be two kinds of prophets, false prophets and true prophets, good trees and bad trees, good fruit and bad fruit. And one of the trees' destiny is very different than the destiny of the other tree. Um, you see in verse 24, verse 24 and following, you find two builders. You find two houses being built. You find two, temp, uh, two uh, foundations. And you find two very different destinies. You find the destiny of one house at the end of verse 25. Yet it did not fall 
and the destiny of the other house in verse 27, it fell with a great crash. Now, these twos are a clue to us that something's going on, that there are two groups of people that Jesus is addressing here in in his preaching. Now, you might conclude that the first group are the people who are in church on Sundays, thereabouts, right? That they're the people who carry their Bibles to church, who have the right Bible, who have the right kind of doctrine, who sing the right kinds of worship songs. When the offering plate comes in, they empty their pockets. They put their credit cards in. They write IOUs. They load that offering plate up. That those are the people that Jesus is talking about who have entered by the narrow gate. These are the ones that have built their house upon the solid foundation. You would think that. And then the other group, those who, as he says in verse 13, for wide is the gate and broad is the road. You, you would think that he's thinking, talking about then people who don't go to church on, on Sunday mornings. In fact, a clue that that might be the case is because many enter through the broad gate. Only a few. And I just think of my block. There's maybe 15 houses on our cul-de-sac. And I would just, my best guess is out of those 15 houses, about four of us got up this morning, got dressed, and drove to church. The rest of them are at Starbucks this morning. And they're reading their newspaper on their iPad, or they're reading a book, or they're mowing their lawn. And so we could conclude that what Jesus is talking about is the group that entered by the narrow gate are these people that are in church. And the people who entered by the broad gate are the people who who don't go to church, who who don't know the right kind of Bible, whose doctrine is really non-existent or fuzzy if it's even existent, and who um, who, uh, uh, who who spend all their money on themselves. And, and so what we would say maybe is that the good people, the people who enter by the narrow gate, they're the, they're the moral people, and the other group of people are the, we're just going to use the term, immoral people. These are the good people. These are the bad people. And what Jesus is warning us, we might conclude, is make sure you enter by the narrow gate. Because if you enter by the broad gate, like almost everybody else does, you're going to have a very different path. You're going to have destruction, verse 13. You're going to, verse 19, you're going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 23, you're going to have Jesus say to you, I never knew you, away from me. And verse 27, your life, your life. That's what the house is really about, right? He built the house. He built his life. He built his career. He built his relationships. He built his marriage. He built his money. He built all that he is, he or she, and they built it on quicksand. Jesus, don't go that way. We might conclude that. And, and, I, and I have a really good sermon about that. And I could rail and scream and jump. And some of you go, preach it to them, preacher. Preach it to those people out there. We love sermons like that, don't we? Oh, it's them. It's they're the problem. Oh, they're the problem. Oh, they're the problem. But I do not think that that's what we ought to conclude from the text that's in front of us. I think Jesus is preaching this message to people who are all in church, so to speak. I think he's, we know at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount that it's his 
followers that he's preaching to. Now, I know, I know, there's a crowd of, 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 of followers on, looky-loos around the outside, but he's preaching this message to those that he calls his followers. And I think that Jesus is preaching this message to people inside the church. And he's warning people inside the church. He's warning me, because I'm very inside the church. And he's warning you, who are also very inside the church, beware, be careful to make sure you who are inside the church enter by the narrow gate and not by the broad gate because the ends, the conclusions are very, very different. Now, why do I think this? Why do I think this? Because I think it's what the text tells us. So let's look, for instance, at verse 15. Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. Well, people outside the church don't need to watch out for false prophets because all the prophets are false, right? People outside don't have to watch out for false prophets. Where do we have to look, watch out for false prophets? Inside the church, right? Now, the interesting thing about a false prophet is he doesn't look very false, does he? And that's why we have to be very, very careful. So if, um, if, a, if a snarling, snapping wolf and he's got a tail with a point on the end of it. He's got a pitchfork. If, and he's drooling. And his teeth are yellow. If that wolf came into church this morning right over here, I know that John Putris would wrestle him to the ground before he got any further. But if, let's, say, let's just say he got by John, and he got up here into the front to Eric. I love you, Eric. <laughs> I'm going to miss you so much. But if he came up here to Eric and he said, Hey, Eric. <laughs> Worship yourself. Worship yourself. It's the best. Jesus, add Jesus to the formula. Yeah, 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 yeah. I get it. But worship yourself. Have your best life now. <laughs> I've been practicing. This is the best part. It's the best part. <laughs> Now, what's Eric going to do? Oh, give me some of that. Give me more. Eric is going to say, behind me, Satan. He's going to drive him out of the church, right? Because it's just so obvious. So the false prophets never come like that, do they? They come in the church. What does Jesus say? Dressed in sheep's clothing. They come in and they, um, they say the right things. They know the right songs. They know the right Bibles. They, they make, make sure that you know who they are. They speak smoothly. They make you promises. They give you hope. They say, oh, that's okay. Don't worry about that. And they come in in sheep's clothing. Jesus says, be really careful because they will keep you from going through the narrow gate in the church. They want you to go to Broadway. Now, hold something in, in, the, in your Bible here. Hold your, put your wife's hand in there or something. In, in Matthew, and go back to the book of Jeremiah. I knew Jeremiah would get into a sermon one of these days, and finally he does here. Jeremiah chapter 23, page 779 in the Bible. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but it's worth you reading it. It's a good chapter. It's about false prophets. There's much in the Bible about false prophets, but I think this is a pretty, um, this is a really good picture of false prophets in our day as well. Uh, so Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 16. This is what the Lord Almighty says. 
Do not listen to what your prophets, the context is false prophets, lying prophets. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Don't listen to the false prophets, what they're prophesying to you. They fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. Keep your finger in the text, right? But instead, what the false prophets do is they read a verse and set their Bible down. Now, let me tell you about the vision that I just had. And the vision is this. If some of you don't have as much money as you need, you don't have as much money as God wants for you to have. And I have a way. You come forward now. I'm going to pray over you. I'm going to bless you. And if you leave a gift for $5,000, I will pray that God will double that in your life. Right? And just left the Bible behind. Uh, Here's a sermon I heard one time in Africa. For God so loved the world that he gave. And that's exactly what we need to do. Because this place is in shambles. And the car I'm driving. Oh my goodness. What did God do when he loved? He gave, brethren. He says what false prophets do is they don't keep their, their finger in the text. And, they, and they, they talk about their dreams. And, and, they, and look what they, in verse 17, they keep saying to those who despise me, oh, oh, don't worry about it. Lord's gracious. doesn't matter that you're self-centered, that you're selfish, that you just think about yourself and your own tribe. The Lord says, the Lord says no, you, here's what the Lord says. You're going to have peace. You're going to have prosperity. And to those who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, they say, no harm will come to you. This is the broad road, right? This is the road we want to go down. I don't want to go down a narrow way. When I got my MRI one time, I didn't want to go in that tube. It's like getting stuck in a straw, right? And then all that music, that sound, boom, 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 right? I didn't want that. I want the broad way. Can't you guys do this out in a field somewhere? Play some nice music. See, we want to go to the Broadway. And the false prophets will promise you the Broadway. Go, go back to Matthew. Go back. Let your wife's hand relax a little bit there. Jesus, Jesus says, uh, be careful. They're ferocious wolves. He says, by your fruit, you will recognize them. But here's the interesting thing about fruit is sometimes you don't know fruit is rotten until a very long time later. Because if, if I came in here with a basket of fruit and I came over to Sarah with this basket of fruit, and it was all rotten and maggots and all that. And I offered that to Sarah. Sarah's going to go, no way, right? So the fruit that the false prophets offer us looks good. It looks, it looks like, look like genuine fruit. And a lot of times we don't, under, we don't know that the fruit is rotten until the judgment day. So Jesus says, keep your finger in the text to discover what is good fruit and what is, what is not good fruit. And I think that sometimes in the church we can get anesthetized and we can get um, kind of drugged into, into thinking that what the false prophets among us preach is really where it's at. Because it's the broad way. It's the easy way. That's what Jesus is saying, isn't he? He, said, he says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. 
and only a few find it. Now, now Jesus, Jesus, then he takes it from kind of this story about the false prophets, and he takes it right to where we live. And this is one of the scariest passages in the Bible. This is why this is the warning. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Oftentimes when you find that phrase, the day or that day, it's speaking of judgment day. So many will say to Jesus on judgment day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And didn't we drive out demons in your name? And didn't we perform many miracles in your names? But Jesus will say to them plainly, clearly, I never knew you away from me. Do you understand better now why I don't think Jesus is talking about people in the church and people outside the church? Because these are people who look very much like church people, right? They, They smell like church people. They sound like church people. They look like church people. They act like church people. I mean, they're doing miracles. I haven't done any recently. They've, done, they've driven out demons. I haven't driven out demons recently. They're doing all the things that church people do. But when judgment day comes, Jesus says to them, I never knew you. You never entered the narrow gate. See, Jesus is talking, I, 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 Jesus is talking to people inside the church. Now, now, now I, I know what do they say? They say, Lord, Lord. You see, they're, they're theologically accurate. They're theologically um, uh, orthodox. They're, they're, they're emotive. They're passionate. Lord, Lord. They don't just say Jesus. They say Jesus, Jesus, right? And, 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 and they do these great acts. Uh, uh, so they, they look and they sound and they smell like believers. But these terrible words that will echo in their brains for all of eternity. I never knew you. Now, now you're going to ask me, how, how could they prophesy and drive out demons and not be believers? I knew you were going to ask me that question. So the next verse, no, I don't know. But here's what I do know, is that Paul tells us that the devil sometimes shows up as an angel of light. Not every miracle comes from God. And, and, and I think, too, uh, sometimes the miracles we see, are they really miracles? You know, what do you see the next day or the day after or the day after that? And, and now I think God does miracles, but miracles last. And, and, and the miracles that I often see on television are miracles the next day that as, as, as people do investigative reporting. Uh, they're not there anymore. But, but I think it's more the evil one can mimic the miracles and, and, and uh, uh, driving out demons even and, and prophesying in their name. Not, not that those things aren't good. Those things are good, but we need to be careful um, because there's many false prophets that are out there. And so, so and Jesus says, look at, look at some of you, uh, all of you have built houses, he says. All of you have built lives. He's talking to people in the church. You've built your life. And the, and, and the houses all look the same. It's not that one house is this 
three bed or five bedroom, five bath, three car garage on four acres, and another guy has this little shanty. Now, Jesus, and there's no indication that Jesus says from the outside, both of these houses look exactly the same. There's one thing that's different about the two houses. And we'll come back to that. So here we have this warning, this severe warning. And then we have Jesus exposing our hearts. Jesus is saying, listen, you, you, may, you may try to glue rotten fruit on a good tree. You may prophesy, you think in my name. You may build a really good-looking house. But let me tell you, let me tell you, the difference between the two houses is not the way they were built, but on the foundation on which they were built. He says, the way you build a house on the rock is you enter through the narrow gate. And the way you build a house on quicksand is you enter through the broad and expansive gate. And Jesus does open heart surgery on these guys and he exposes their hearts and he wants to expose our hearts this morning as well. Look at verse 22. This is so interesting. You know that the New Testament was written in the Greek language and, and sometimes when the translators translate, uh, translate it, they have to make judgment calls. And, and here's a place where I think they made a judgment call where I wish they would have judged another way. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, um, but uh, I, I wish they would have gone another direction because it, it helps us understand what the original readers heard. So I'm going to read it to you, verse 22, and I'm going to emphasize one word three different times because it appears, this same word appears three different times in the original, only once in the English. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And did not we drive out demons in your name? And did not we perform many miracles? You see, you see what you hear in the original is me, me, me. I, I, I. We, we, we. And, and it's, notice this. Notice in, in the text here in verses 21 and 22, the very first thing these people say to Jesus is, hey, Lord, look at us. Look what we've done. Look at my church. Look at Look at, look at my house. Look at my works. Look at, look, at, uh, look at the fruit off in my life. The very first thing on judgment day that these people say to Jesus is not fall down and in front of him and say, Jesus, it is only by your grace. It is only by your mercy that I am, this is, I am so undeserving because my heart is bad. You've rescued me. You died on the cross in my place. You don't hear any of that here in this text, at least. What you hear is this ugly song, me, me, me. Look what we did. Look what we did. Look what we did. And you see, what they're trying to build up is, is what, what it sometimes is called the good enough identity, good enough self-identity, the good person identity. I, and what the good person identity is, is this identity that we all try to, to, to build up inside. We know we're sinners, but I, I just sin a little. Mostly I'm good. In fact, I sin a little, and then I do all these other good things to hope to maybe counterbalance these things. That, that 
that, that I, because, I, because I, to psychologically live, I've got to feel good about myself. So I, I work hard. I do my calculus so that I can figure out the math so that knowing I do some bad things, that I am selfish in some ways, I try to counteract that with, with good things that I do, with, with church things that I do, with, with um, uh, uh, graceful things that I do, with kind things that I do. And we try to balance those things. That's the broad way. The narrow way is very different. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. David Brooks is one of my favorite uh, um, writers, and uh, he writes, uh, writes op-ed pieces for the New York Times from time to time. And he wrote a really interesting op-ed piece a couple of years ago called The Moral Diet. And, and what he said in this article is that m- most people, so probably all people, most people cheat. Oh, no, 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 I don't cheat. No, he says, he says most people cheat, but they only cheat to a certain point. And all of us have a different point there. He says, most people cheat, and they only cheat to a certain point, because once I get going past a certain point, I don't feel as good about myself. But I have this tolerance level that I still can feel pretty good about myself if I only cheat to this level. But if I go that one more step, I don't feel very good about myself. So I keep, to keep this good person identity, I know where that line is. So David Brooks says, most people won't cheat so much that it makes it harder to feel good about themselves, right? And he says social scientists approve this. So social scientists have gone to university, and in a dorm, in the common space in a dorm, on a floor in a dorm room, a a, a dorm apartment, what they'll do in that common space is there's a table out there, you know, where people put stuff and study and whatnot, and they'll they'll put a bowl on the table there, where all these university students are come back and forth, a bowl on the table full of dollar, crisp dollar bills. And then they'll put another bowl, a bigger bowl, full of cold Coca-Colas. And then they film this. And they watch the university students go back and forth by. And all, most of the university students will stop, and they'll look at the dollar bills. And then they'll walk over, and they'll look at the Cokes, and they'll kind of look around, and they'll take one of the two things. Now, which, which thing is taken most? The Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola. Now, they know it's not theirs. The Coke's not theirs. The dollar bills are not theirs. Why don't they? Some of them took the dollar bills, but most didn't. And it was because most of us would feel bad about ourselves if we took money that was not ours, but we don't feel bad about ourselves about taking Cokes that are not ours, right? And, and uh, they did another experiment where they had two scientists. One was blind and one was sighted. And um, they, they put both of the two uh, scientists uh, who were in on this thing, they put them in separate taxi cabs in New York City. And they, 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 they handed to the driver the instructions to where they wanted to go. And so the driver drove the blind man to where he wanted to go, the same place, and he drove the sighted man to the very same place he wanted to go. Guess who was overcharged every single time? Now, again, now think about this for a second. Now, with this idea of uh, I'll cheat to a certain point, but then I'll, if I cheat too much, I'll start feeling bad about myself. Who was cheated every single time? The sighted man. The sighted man, interestingly enough. And what's the reason for that? Can you sleep with yourself at night thinking that you've cheated a blind person? 
But you can sleep with yourself thinking, oh, it's only five more bucks. What's the big deal to the sighted person? And that's what they found in this study. What does it said here? Um, uh, they would have felt guilty about cheating a blind person. Uh, so we want to keep feeling good about ourselves. So we manipulate, we do math to work it out. He says, in, in summary, he says, and given our awesome cap- capabilities for rationalization and self-deception, most of us are going to measure ourselves leniently. I was honest with the blind passenger because I'm a wonderful person. I cheated the sighted one because she probably had too much money anyway. That's the broad way, isn't it? I'm good enough. I'm good enough. I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm good enough. In fact, I know, I know I have some sin in my life, but look at all the good, look at the prophecies that I've done. Look at the house that I've built. Look at the fruit that I've borne in my life. And Jesus is warning us, warning us, warning us, warning us. And he says in verse 27, and the rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. The reason it fell is that person in church never went through the narrow gate. They were their own savior. They were their own rescuer. They were counting on their good works and their abilities, their good reputation, their financial status, their work status, their popularity. They were counting on that to to win them entrance into the kingdom of God. Me, me, me me, and it all ended in a cloud of dust. And what Jesus is doing here is he's saying it's a heart matter. And when your heart is full of yourself, you will never get into the kingdom of God. You will never get into the kingdom of God. And so Jesus invites us to bow. Jesus invites us to bow. Now, how did did Jesus begin the ending of the Sermon on the Mount? (laughs) In verse 13, enter through the narrow gate. Enter through the narrow gate. Now, that sounds like a downer to me, doesn't it? The sermon ends on a downer. This section of it begins on a downer. Um, Because that seems cramped and restrictive to me and to you. But look what's on the other side of the gate. Look what's on the other side of the gate. Look look what he says. Um, Verse 14, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. You see the two, you see the two destinations? The broad way that looks so inviting, where I'm the Savior, I'm my Savior, it ends in destruction. But the narrow way, it expands and it expands and it expands. In one of the Chronicles of Narnia, um, one of the last ones, one of the characters is uh, heading up a hill, and he sees a barn or a stable ahead, and it looks very small, but he has to go into it. And, and as, he's, as he gets there, he says, it's too small to go into. But finally, he opens the door, and he goes in, and when he gets inside, he sees blue skies, and he sees grass growing as far as he could have ever imagined, and, and he, his, he meets his new friends, and they're all laughing, and he says, he says something like this. He says, he says, my, he says, this house appears 
bigger from the inside than it does from the outside. And one of his friends said, yes, that's the way it is here. What looks so narrow on the outside, once you get in it, expands and expands and expands into ever-increasing joy in the kingdom of God. Now, how do we go through that narrow door, and why, why do we want to go through? I want you to go to the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. We've been spending our time today at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, but I want you to go to the very beginning. The end ends with a crash. I want you to see how it begins, the Sermon on the Mount. Can you think back 16 messages ago, how Jesus' first words of the Sermon on the Mount are, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The way we, the way we go through the gate, the narrow gate, is by realizing and recognizing, confessing that we carry nothing with us. That there's not enough good enough identity. There's not enough good works. There's not enough me, me, me. But instead, he's talking about not, not financially poor. He's talking about people who realize that spiritually they are busted. Spiritually they are broken. Spiritually, they're sinners, and they're messy, and they have nothing to offer God whatsoever. The way we enter the narrow gate is by coming bankrupt with no accolades, no houses that we've built, no, no prophecies that we've made, no, no fruit that we've borne, no look at me. We come and we humbly bow Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is warning people in the church. He's warning us today. He's warning me today. He's exposing my heart. Gary, have you entered the broad way? Is it about you and what you've accomplished and what you do and who you are? Is that what's going to get you into the kingdom of heaven? Or is it in spite of you? It's because you're so broken and you enter this gate and my death on the cross for you is what allows you to enter the gate. You know that we, some of us just returned from Israel a couple of weeks ago. And when we were in Israel, uh, we went to the city of Bethlehem. And of course, Bethlehem is where Jesus was born. And all around Bethlehem, it's built up now, but there are still some open fields. And all around Bethlehem are caves, and they're ancient caves. They're they're weather-formed weather, weather uh, caves mostly. Some of them have been chipped out a little bit further. And we know that for, for centuries, these caves were used by shepherds. They'd bring their flocks in at night to protect them. They would, uh, they would cook their food, the shepherds would. They would sleep in the caves at night oftentimes uh, to keep the elements off of them. And in about 300 A.D., there was one cave in Bethlehem that was of special interest and many people thought that this is the cave in which Jesus was born. Now, most of us think that Jesus was born out back of a Holiday Inn, but that's not where he was born. He was likely, very likely, I believe, born in a cave. It was a very natural place where animals were, where feeding troughs were, and, and, and so it's likely that Jesus was born in a cave. And so about 300 A.D., um, uh, people 
thought that they knew where that cave was. And so a church was built over that cave to preserve it. People could come and identify, come and worship there at the very birthplace of Jesus. I mean, that'd be a wonderful place to worship, right? And so, um, so a church was built over a small church, and then a bigger church was built over that, and then that church was destroyed, and then another church was built, and then a bigger church was built, and then a bigger church was built over those other churches. And so today, when you go to Bethlehem, this is what you see. You see the church of the nativity. And inside this church, inside this church, inside another church, inside of another church, you, you find a cave where many people think Jesus was born. I don't know if he was born there or not. I like to imagine he was, but I don't know that he was. But it, brings, it really elicits some neat memories in worship. And so when, when you go to Israel, when you go to, to Bethlehem, you go to the church of the nativity because you want to go there, right, to where Jesus, where some, many people think that Jesus was born. But how do you get in? And that's an interesting question. And there are several doors, but you see here in this picture, this is the, this is the main way. This is called Manger Square. You see only one door into the church. And um, the door is a narrow and low door. And take a look at it. It's four feet high and two feet wide. Now, there's a couple of reasons it was built that way, but one of the reasons it was built that way is it's called the humble gate because you have to bow down to go into the presence of where the Lord was born. You can't, it's not the broad gate, is it? And I just think it's a beautiful picture for us, this humble gate, it's a beautiful picture of the way we enter the narrow gate that Jesus talks about. You can't carry your backpack. You'll hit your head. You'll, you'll catch your backpack. I've seen many people do that, going into that gate. Um, you, you, have to, you have to bow down in humbleness before him, and you can't carry your suitcases full of your good stuff because you're not good enough, and I'm not either. And what Jesus invites us to do today is to bow down before him. Your heart's been exposed. You're not as good as you think you are, and I'm not either. And there's a severe warning, a severe warning. Don't let your life end in an irreparable crash. But instead, enter into that narrow gate, and once you get inside, is all you can see is God's creation forever and forever, and the ever-expanding joy of being with Him. Jesus, as we come to this table, as we come to the communion table here today that reminds us of how you went through a narrow way, how you emptied yourself and became very small, microscopic, and entered through a woman and entered in a cave and lived here among us, and how you let everything close in on you and you 
took all of the wrath that was due to us because of our sin, how you took that all upon yourself as our substitute. Jesus, may we say, I will too. I will go that narrow way. Only only holding on to you, Jesus. And I'll leave behind all that I've held on to so proudly and thought would bring, would earn me um, the kingdom of God. And so we invite you now as we worship to come to the tables and to come and bow before him and enter the narrow gate of Jesus and only Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and let's worship.